Honest, open, and vulnerable may contain adult language and material that is not suitable for listeners under 18. This is a stream of consciousness podcast that delves into an eclectic mix of topics. Audience discretion is advised. You're listening to episode 93 of Honest, Open, and Vulnerable, and I'm Scarlett. And this is Matthew. And I am Ryan. Uh, we definitely encourage Art uh, you to participate and give us feedback. Uh, the easy way to do that is post a comment on our website, hovpodcast.net. You can also like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash honest.open.vulnerable. And you can find me on Instagram. That's at Colonel underscore Tux, spelled K-E-R-N-E-L underscore T-U-X. You can find me on Twitter at, excuse me, find us on Twitter at HOV Podcast. Uh, You can find my blog at inscarletstorm.wordpress.com. And you can find me on Instagram at the Fuchsia Lady. That's T-H-E-F-U-C-H-L-A-D-Y. And we can also be reached at hovpodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail at 231-846-8420. And my writings can be found on Instagram at Matthew Scribbles. And you are coming to us, uh, we are coming to you rather from the Technical Glitch Studio. And today is a very special episode of HOV Podcast. And Ryan is going to uh, introduce our guest for the day. Yes, um, um, just just uh, full, full disclosure, I am a bit, bit, ner- bit nervous recording this, so I'll try to not go 50 miles an hour for everybody. Um, so we do have a very special guest here. She's written for uh, Model, View, Model View Culture and Shameless Magazine. She's spoken and held workshops at numerous tech uh, conferences. She's also the lead organizer for Southeast, or a lead organizer, I'm not sure if it's the, but <laughs> for Southeast Asian Ladies in Tech. And she's also the founder of If Me, which is uh, web- a website on uh, mental health, which we'll talk about later. And and I, I have to bring this up, but, uh, but it, it's just so adorably authentic that on the la- last line of her, uh, of the about page of julianuen.org, ooh, ooh, I, I also play well with others and follow instructions. Well, most of the time. So without further ado, here's Ju- uh, Julie Nguyen on the line. Hi. Thank it's you nice again for uh, for joining us today, Julia. It's a yes, great to have thank you. It's great to have you here. And if you've been li- listening to our uh, our podcast for any length of time, uh, you know we're no stranger what whatsoever to talking about uh, mental health, either through dealing with our own issues or or something in the news that pop popped up. To, so I'd like to kind of start out with uh, maybe asking uh, Julie what her uh, journey is. Julie, are you with us? I am. Sorry. You, like, you, like, you said, oh, I should share my journey. And it's like, such an open, huge open-ended question. So I'm, I'm trying to think <laughs> yeah, of how I should this. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So I... 
I openly deal with mental illness. Um, I'm diagnosed with OCD, anxiety and depression, and most recently PTSD. And mental health has affected me in all sorts of ways growing up, up until now. Um, I still deal with issues. I still deal with issues of self-harm, issues of issues with taking medication, all sorts of things like that that come with dealing with the mental health system and having mental illness. And in the last in the last three to four years, um, you know, working in the tech industry as an intern and also as a full-time software engineer, and also being a computer science student at one of the most competitive computer science schools in the world, University of Waterloo. Those moments were really like, those moments really tested my ability to deal with my mental health and accept it. Um, you know, I, I grew up, as I mentioned in the Code Newbies podcast, I grew up in a really like difficult home situation. My parents are divorced. I have an autistic brother. My single mom raised me single-handedly along with my brother and my sister. And it was really difficult being diagnosed with mental illness and growing up during that time. My parents are Vietnamese refugees from Vietnam. And, you know, like in a lot of immigrant communities and a lot of Asian communities and a lot of communities of color, people don't talk about mental illness or mental health. So I felt I spent the bulk of my childhood and like my adolescence struggling a lot with that. And in high school, I missed a lot of class. I was hospitalized a bunch. And oh, wow. Yeah. Um, actually, the first time I was diagnosed with mental illness, it was because I was involuntarily taken to a hospital, specifically an, adoles an adolescence ward. And that's when I was diagnosed, and that was when I first started treatment. And it was really difficult because my mom, my mom is amazing, and she's taking care of my brother who is autistic. And for me, like she drove me to every single therapy appointment. She spent a lot of time trying to get me to do counseling. That's awesome. Yeah, getting me to stick with medication. And you know, I was at an age where I didn't appreciate it as much. And in general, it's just hard. Like you're growing up, you're a teenager and you want to fit in, you want other people mm -hmm. to like you. And then at the same time, you're dealing with mental health and mental illness. And then also, you know, I guess for me, being an Asian woman, specifically a Southeast Asian woman, I mean, you don't grow up with role models anywhere that are, you know, authentic and have these conversations at all. So right. I kind of, I, I, I think at an early age, I felt really, I felt really constricted with like the stereotypes that are associated with being an Asian woman, you know, especially, you know, the concept of being a model minority. And I very much tried to fit into that stereotype because I didn't want people to like doubt my abilities. I didn't want people to, to see that I had issues. So I, I very much tried to focus on school. I very much cared about my grades and, I sort of occupied my life with all that so that I wouldn't have to talk to anyone about having mental illness. Yeah, I, I can definitely understand that. And I, I certainly um, re relate to you on a number of different things because my, my mom was very young when she had, when she had me, like she was uh, a, fr a freshman in college and um, there, and it was very, very much, I mean, she, she had like a number of part partners while, you know, I, while, 
while she was raising me, but it, it was very much a sing, single parent uh, ha- household a lot of the time. And there, there are some dif- difficult, uh, there, there, there are some, there are some di- difficult uh, divorces. Like I can, I actually cannot wa- watch the movie boyhood for, for that very reason. It just brings, um, but wow, that was random. So, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, like I, I, t- I can totally empathize with that, and it's tough. Like coming from a single parent household, it's tough, especially one where, especially one where like the the caregiver is a mother. And mm-hmm. I guess for me, um, my mom had to quit her job and everything to take care of my brother full time. She was his primary caregiver, and that was really tough. Like financially, growing up, we grew up in low income neighborhoods. My mom didn't work and it was really tough just not being able to afford things. And then also dealing with mental illness and mental health. And, you know, you need to go to therapy, you need to get medication. And it was all really hard and it has an effect on you. And I think, I think kids who grew up in the, in like broken families or families that deal with things like disability or even mental Mm -hmm. illness, you're kind of forced to grow up earlier. You're forced to, sort of carry the burden of your family earlier than you're supposed to. So I grew up feeling a lot of, I felt like I, you know, I owed everything to my mom, obviously for raising us and doing so many things for us. But also because of that, I felt like, you know, my problems were insignificant. And if I opened up to her, for instance, about mental health, Mm -hmm. like I would be adding to her burden. So it, that was another reason why it was really hard for me to really get that. be authentic about my mental health because, you know, I didn't want to burden my family. We already had so many other problems. And I kind of, at the time, I saw mental illness as sort of something that I chose, a, like I chose for myself. It was kind of like, oh, you know, I'm just a bad kid and I'm just acting out and there's something that I could do to stop this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, obviously, um, you know, that's not what mental illness or mental health is. It's something that you can't control. It's something that's also very intrinsic to everybody. And yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Julia, when did, how old were you when you made the decision to um, uh, share your mental illness with your mom? Well, I mean, she was part of that process of diagnosing me. So for a really long time, my mom suspected I had mental illness and I think having an autistic brother and my mom being very familiar with that side of healthcare, um, she made a lot of, she was very concerned and she always made an active effort to understand what was going on. And she was like the first person to take me to therapy, take me to counseling. And honestly, she was the first person to tell me that, you know, it was okay to have mental illness. But at the time it was all very confusing and overwhelming for me. So I just saw like having mental illness as something really horrible and bad. So I was, I was first diagnosed with mental illness when I was 15. And um, as I mentioned earlier, it was involuntarily. It was, you know, I was forced to go to a hospital. I was on like some kind of hold where I couldn't leave. And that was where I was diagnosed. So, but I guess, I guess the bigger question there is more like, you know, when did I start opening up to my family about my like mental health and how things were and, that took a really long time. It took me until, you know, moving away from home, going to university, living on my own, having my own experiences, and then also realizing that, 
you know, mental health and mental illness follows you everywhere. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who you're with. It's part of you. And because of that, it really taught me that it's something that I can't ignore. And through that realization, I just accepted myself more and I became more honest about what I was going through. And, and because of that, like I'm here today and I like speak about it. I write about it and I'm very open about it to the internet. And yeah. What what was that process like? I mean, because obviously it's one thing to open up to your own family about your your mental challenges. What what was the process like uh, to act to decide to be actual public about it? Yeah, um, it didn't happen overnight. It was more like during my first few years in university, uh, it was just really difficult for me. Actually, my first year of university, I, I studied computer science and I failed my first semester of school. Um, I failed all of the computer science courses I was supposed to take. I failed my math courses and I was at risk of being kicked out of my program. And even though all of this horrible stuff happened, I didn't tell anyone about it. I was super ashamed. And I think that goes back to, you know, being like a child of immigrants, being Asian feeling like you have to do really well in school or you disappoint your family. And also like university is expensive. So, you know, I didn't, and I came from a poor family. I had to take out loans and I didn't want to tell people I was not doing well. So like when I was failing my courses and struggling with school and also dealing with mental illness at the same time, I didn't tell anyone about it. I like flat out lied to my classmates, to my friends, to my family, and they would ask how I was doing. And I would just say, I'm doing awesome. You know, I'm getting A's. This is, you know, I meant to study computer science and all of those things. And that just ended up like, I just ended up digging a hole for myself. Cause you know, you know, when you lie, it just the lie gets bigger and bigger and you feel more guilty. So I, I reached a point where I like, I just like, couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't like maintain this lie. And I felt like I had to like constantly lie about it was because, you know, like I said before, um, you know, being a child of immigrants, you, you always want to do well, but then also there is the added element of me being a woman in computer science. Um, there are a lot of women in tech or computer science. (laughs) Yeah. And even when like my first semester of university, like I sensed that right away, like I looked around and none of my classmates looked like me. And because of that, I just like automatically somehow like clicked in my head that I had to be some kind of like model minority for women in tech and that like me doing well would mean something awesome for like the female cause or I don't know, something like that. And I think, you know, a lot of women feel this way or a lot of minorities who are in industries where they're not represented kind of feel like, oh my God, I have to do really well because if I do really well, that will show other people who are in my demographic or in my community that they can do well and you, you kind of want to be like the token woman or like the model minority. And so that um, kind of actually, um, now we're kind of progressing more toward, towards your, your, you know, kind of get what, well, what, what, what were, what were some kind of the advocacy things that you were involved, involved in when you were uh, at the university? Yeah, uh, so I I joined the Women in Computer Science Committee at my school, and that was a group that I wish I had joined a lot earlier, because (laughs) I remember my first years of university studying computer science. Um, Because there were so few women, I kind of saw women in my program as competition, 
I kind of felt like, oh my God, like there are so few of us and, you know, there are only a limited number of spots for, Mm -hmm. you know, a woman to succeed. And it was a pattern that I noticed where a lot of my classmates who are female, we weren't like super close. We weren't like best friends or anything. Not that like all women have to be best friends, but it just felt really, it felt kind of uncomfortable sort of. Um, I felt like my interactions with them were really limited and it was just hard to like make close female friends. And then, yeah, I, I discovered this group. Um, they had, sorry. So I discovered, I le- I'd learned about um, the Women in Computer Science group uh, through events. Um, they would post events through emails and have like Facebook groups and share events. And, and then like, I don't know, one, one day I just decided to go out to one of them and it was just awesome. It was just like a really casual setting where there are other women in computer science and then from then, from there, I, I decided I wanted to volunteer and help out more. Well, that's, uh, that's really interesting that uh, you were able to find at least a group that you were able to identify with in terms of a group for women supporting women in the same field. And that's something that's incredibly rare that it, even here in the States, that's something that we would like to believe we see. And now far <laughs> as a man, far be it for me to speak on behalf of women because I can't do that. But uh, just from what we, the, the limited exposure we see in mainstream media or even alternative media, we don't see many uh, groups of that sort. So that is, that is really good to, to see that you were able to find that support network there. Yeah, and that group has been so supportive for me. Um, like I said earlier, I'd wish I joined early. Like I had wished I joined the Women in Computer Science Club at my school earlier, because I think I would have been a lot happier. Would have had more friends that would have like talked me through situations. But um, that group is amazing. Like the women are incredibly supportive of each other. We have events where we mentor each other and just have frank conversations about things that like we all face. You know, like failing courses feeling overwhelmed, feeling like you have to impress your peers, um, especially going to the University of Waterloo where like we're known for like computer science and engineering and we have the largest co-op program in the world. And there's just constantly, you know, pressures to like get really good internships and like one up each other. And um, it's all very overwhelming, but it's nice to have a group where you can be honest with yourself and like still get support and not feel like you're behind or, not smart enough because obviously like I had a lot of imposter syndrome for instance being at Waterloo because I felt like I felt like I was a lot dumber than everyone else around me but like the reality is whether it's in university or in the workplace um, everyone feels that way everyone feels really insecure everyone feels like they don't deserve to be there and but obviously you work hard and you deserve to be there and everyone has something special to offer and like with, with groups like the Women in Computer Science Club, I felt like they really tried to like teach that to people. And, and because of that, like that community has been really awesome and supportive for me. What was it about the computer science field that drew you in? What was, what was the, the, the appeal? Um, so I started, I started teaching myself how to code when I was in elementary school. And it was because of the site called Neopets. Um, it's a virtual pet site. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, it's we're, awesome. We're very yeah. familiar. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a simulation of the real world, world almost because you could buy houses for your pets. You could get Neopoints. You could trade it on like 
the Neopets stock market. You could do so much stuff. It was amazing. Um, it it taught it actually teaches kids like a lot of life skills. But um, the really cool thing about Neopets is that you can like customize like your pet pages, your user page, and there's this thing called a guild. And the guild is like a, a club you can start based on like whatever shared interests you have. So I remember I was really into like alternative music when I was younger. And there was this like one band called Evanescence that I was really obsessed yes. with. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're great. Yeah. Um, so I remember like I made guilds dedicated to Evanescence. And then I like torrented a copy of Photoshop and like created layouts and they looked really awful. And, you know, that's when I started learning how to code because you needed, like, to know HTML and CSS. Oh, yeah, back then? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, like, the internet was very, like, DIY back then. Like, oh, I yeah, of, like, very MySpace. much so. I think of MySpace and, like, you had to, like, copy and paste the layout to design your page. Like, there was mm -hmm. no, like, UI for you to, like, I don't know, customize. No. Like, <laughs> um. So yeah, I think a lot of people from that generation, you know, or like have at least seen HTML and CSS before, which is really cool. So yeah, I got into website making through that. And then I reached a point where I was like, oh, I want to build my own website and not have it hosted on Neopets. Because with Neopets, you know, there's lots of limits. It's like a kid's website. So right. they were very like, they had rules against like external images, for instance, and like different stuff like that. So I somehow ended up on like there were sites like Tripod and Freewebs and Angel yep. Fire. Yeah, like yeah. the free hosting website. GeoCities. Exactly, GeoCities. Um, yeah, and then I started making websites and like full on fan clubs for Evanescence and other random things. And then through that, I learned scripting. I learned like JavaScript and like PHP. And then by then, it, like, it was high school for me, and then WordPress was the bomb back then. <laughs> so I ended up learning, like, how to, like, design themes and plugins for WordPress. And, mm -hmm. yeah, like, I'd been coding for a while. It'd been something I'd do for fun. And I was very much one of those kids who spent their time, like, indoors on the computer. Like, I'd rather, like, back then, I'd, I really enjoyed that over going outside and, like, having recess like I would be that kid who skipped recess to like go on the computer in the library but yeah um what was really cool was that like there were so many like teenage girls like me who were doing that um who were building websites and like even writing articles about like what they had learned and like they shared tutorials on how to write scripts it was actually amazing um anyways on a random side note like a lot of these people I grew up with, like, designing websites, they're, like, web developers now. They're software engineers now. And it's, it's so amazing. But, and it was back to high school. So I had been, like, coding um, just for fun. And I remember I'd have conversations with my male friends. And I did the International Baccalaureate program in high school, um, which is basically kind of AP, but on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Wow. Like, no offense to AP, but, like, IB is, like, legit. Um, anyways, so I had really wanted to take a computer science class because I knew what computer science was. My dad actually had to study computer science. Um, he had to study computer science. It sounds like he had to do it, but um, he originally studied mechanical engineering in Europe um, when he had escaped from Vietnam. And then when he came to Canada, he actually couldn't find a job as an engineer. Huh. Yeah. I mean, this happens a lot to, like, you know, 
immigrants or like refugees like they're like degrees from other countries just don't count in like the US or Canada so because of that my dad went back to school in Canada and my mom like worked her ass off to like get him through school but he took a degree in computer science because I guess compared to like mechanical engineering for instance or like civil engineering um, I guess with computer science you don't have to be that good at English so I'm kind of assuming yeah, why that's, he's that's true <laughs> yeah I mean it's it's an easier field it's more of an international field that you can like easily get into um, but anyways like I had known about the word computer science and I really wanted to take a computer science course in high school but it actually wasn't offered in the IV program so I missed out on that but I did talk to like I had a bunch of male friends who took computer science courses at my high school and I asked him about it and I was like, hey guys, like I can code too and this is super cool. Like what type of things are you learning? And then they asked me, oh yeah, like what do you code? Um, what languages do you know? And I, and I told them, you know, I, I'm learning JavaScript. I'm writing like a bunch of PHP. Last week I learned Ruby. And like they flat out told me, you know, those aren't real programming languages. Like we're learning like C++ and Java and lower level stuff. And what you're doing isn't really programming. It's more like like web design. And that was like the biggest thing that sort of deterred me from computer science for a while. It was like, oh, is what I'm doing actually part of computer science or is it just like web design or, but it's really funny because, you know, back then someone who made a website or a web application was called a webmaster. And then now like everyone has like a fancy title, like you're an engineer. Like I've heard like front end engineer like, You're a social media guru. Exactly. Or like a CSS engineer. But, but yeah, it's so interesting to think about how like our titles for like web developer, web designer, et cetera, have changed over the years. Now, I am only tangentially in, involved in, with, with coding and everything, but that interaction that you, de you described about, oh, that's not real, pro that... I, I I literally just choked choked the air when you when you mentioned that. I mean I I did, that that just drives me crazy <laughs> when it's like oh, oh if you're not using assembly language you're you're not you're herp -derp -derp -derp. And It's like no it's all it's all this you know it's it's just different applications of of similar tool sets. Exactly yeah, and then you know if you think about it now like JavaScript is like the most used programming language in the world. So. Right. Like, who's a web designer now? <laughs> um, yeah, and, and like, you know, so, so, much, so much of tech, technology now is, is, is web-based anyway. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're move, move, right. definitely moving to more towards, you know, cloud, com, cloud computing and everything. And that's, that's, you know, like Ruby, PHP, et, et cetera, is, more, is definitely more suited for that. Right, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I guess back to your original question, like how I ended up studying computer science. I guess when it came to applying for universities, honestly, I didn't really have like many ideas on what I wanted to study. Um, like I thought about electrical engineering because my uncle was an electrical engineer and that sounded cool. And then like architecture kind of interested me because um, I'm interested in like I'm interested in art and also science and um, on another side note, like my mom's an artist. I grew up painting and doing art my whole entire life and playing music. So I thought, you know, maybe studying architecture would somehow bridge, you know, STEM and arts together. Um, 
in retrospect, I'm really glad I didn't go into architecture because it seems like a really stressful field. <laughs> yeah, actually, one of my brothers um, has a master's degree in architecture, and he nearly he ne- he nearly nearly killed himself. <laughs> not, really? not literally, but I mean, he didn't. He's so stressed out. Oh yeah, yeah. he would. I mean, His he. Like he, yeah. he, he ran, he ran, he ran out of, out of spoons. Like some, you know, he was run, running on empty, like at the end of every semester. So. Yeah. I mean, it's a really stressful field. And then on top of being like a technical field, it's very much based like on objectivity or subjectivity mm-hmm. where, you know, you're constantly critiqued on your work and yeah, I don't think I could handle that, but, um, yeah, but looking yeah, at the projects he he made while 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 in uh, while while he was studying, I'm like, oh, clearly, clearly, this is your calling. <laughs> clearly, all of, all of that money I spent, being, clearly, talk, all of that money I spent on Le- on Legos went somewhere. <laughs> talk about being OCD, though. I'm sorry, it's CDO because oh, all of those le- those letters have to be in alphabetical <laughs> order. I'm sorry, <laughs> but very, very. Everything has to be done in a certain order. That, well, that, actually, that's sorry. so your brother. That's so your brother, though. Where it, that everything has to be neat, orderly. He's, he, yeah, yes. he's definitely my brother. <laughs> very much so. Very much so. But anyway, I do. I do want to like stop and like call out something. Um, okay. Like you, you talked about like your brother being very organized and orderly, and then you, mm-hmm. you said so OCD. Um, so. I guess that's something that like sticks out to me a lot because as someone with OCD, um, I think the biggest misconception about OCD is that, you know, people use OCD, you know, colloquially, kind of like they use ADD. Right. Oh, I'm so OCD or I'm so ADD. And like, although like a lot of OCD symptoms or people with OCD have, you know, issues with order and um, stuff like that, it's, that's not all like that's not the entire OCD experience. Oh no! Right. No. I do have a brother who has OCD, and no, it's not the whole story. No, yeah. <laughs> no. My my, I do have a brother who has. You're laughing because you know what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. And I didn't mean that glibly, but yeah. But yes, I mean he's just a, anal retentive would be a better way to describe your brother as far as just being very everything can't he was doing some model mm-hmm. and a pops, what was it? A popsicle stick or a toothpick? What was it that he was building something out of and something was out of place? Oh, right. And he went right. ballistic. Yeah. And it looks fine to me. What's your problem? <laughs> I don't see the, anything out. And, no, it's not right. It's not right. And he just, no, it's at yeah. 13 degrees, not 20. And it was like, you don't even know what you're talking about, dude. You know, that kind of thing. So I, when you talk about it being a very stressful field, that's all I'm saying. That no, yeah, I, yeah, you're not yeah, totally. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, like I, I ended up in computer science, just kind of like, oh, I can't think of anything else I would enjoy doing. And then at the point, I kind of, I kind of thought computer science was just coding. I didn't realize it was the entire like academic study of computing. Um, which I would much le- like learn while studying computer science and have to take a whole bunch of math and logic courses and get really confused and wonder, wait, I thought I was just coding. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's something, that's a huge misconception because in, in like the tech industry, for instance, when you want to become a software engineer, when you look at like job applications, it usually says, oh, you know, must have like a bachelor's in computer science or something like that. And it really like creates the misconception that 
like software engineering equals computer science, but it doesn't. Um, like software engineering is like the academic, or is the is the um, software engineering is you know applied computer science. You're using it for means. It's kind of like yeah, you know, science versus engineering, right? Right, right. It's like, yeah, there's science involved in engineering, but it's, uh, it's applied science. It's using science for, to, for a purpose. Exactly, yeah. And actually, I kind of want to get, uh, jump back to, I, I, you, you, you mentioned uh, imposter syndrome er, earlier, and I, I was actually, I, actually, I was about to a ask a question about that. While you're going through this, as far as, you know, struggling, you know, trying, you know, keep keeping up and trying to find community, how, what, um, how, how was it man managing uh, in your imposter syndrome? Because people, I mean, this, I, I'm, I mainly ask because it's something I, I also deal, deal with continuously. And pe people that know me will say, will say, okay, you talk about it way too much. Stop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think imposter syndrome is used a lot now. Like, people are really learning what it is. And they're like, oh, my God, like, I face it too. And, um, but, yeah, I guess for me, I I don't face as much imposter syndrome now than I do in the past, but definitely in the past, especially like being a student and entering a program that I didn't really have much background in other than like knowing how to code. Uh, it definitely felt a lot of imposter syndrome. Like I would be around my classmates and, you know, especially in college, you know, people are always, you know, asserting themselves and trying, trying to find opportunities to succeed. And I'd have lots of male classmates, you know, brag to me about like all of the open source projects they had contributed to or all of the interviewers they were getting with like huge companies like Google, Facebook, Microsoft, whatnot. And like, you know, none of this stuff was happening to me as much as it was happening to them. And, you know, I felt like I was falling behind. I felt like I had to be at their level of success to feel like I succeeded as well. So I think even though imposter syndrome has a lot to do with you getting yourself and not feeling like you belong or you just deserve the success you have, it also has a lot to do with like the culture around you and how people value success and how people refrain from, you know, talking about failure or talking about, you know, things not going as planned. And that's really hard in college or university because, you know, when you enter, when you enter university, your mentality is, okay, I chose this major. I'm going to stick with it for four to five years. I'm going to do really well and graduate and get a job in, a field related to that but then you know the real talk though like what usually happens is that students choose like a major they're really interested in um, take it for a semester or two and then realize wait I don't really like this and then some people you know will do the right thing and like maybe switch majors or take a break from school but then other people will kind of force themselves to stay in a program they don't like and then experience failure and experience burnout and I think and because of that, face a lot of imposter syndrome because, you know, even though they're working really hard to stay in their program, like, people around them and even them themselves are perpetuating a culture where you have to constantly succeed. And if you don't follow the textbook path for success, then, you know, you don't deserve to be here. And I can assume that that's probably something that only exacerbated the, uh, the model minority uh, mentality that you had at that at that point in time in school I think so definitely um, I think being Asian I think that experience is amplified even more 
um, not to speak on behalf of all Asian communities, but you know, a lot of them based, like put a lot of emphasis on education and you know, having a good job and that being a determinant of your success and worth. And a lot of it has to do with um, you know, a lot of Asian communities are immigrants and then a subset of them, um, particularly the Southeast Asian community, the refugees. So, I mean, your parents, you know, did everything for you. They did everything to come to this country and, you know, doing well in school and getting a good job is kind of like your way of being like, Hey, um, you know, I did you right. Um, all of this hard work you invested in me is paying off and yeah, it's tough. Um, obviously parents want the best for them, but then for their kids, but at the same time, you know, it affects your mental health. It affects your self-worth even. And I had a lot of friends growing up who are also Asian who felt like they always had to get A's or they always, like if they failed or didn't go into a career path that their parents approved of, like it would be disowned by their family or they would feel like they dishonored them. Right. I, I actually, uh, in my college track, I, I studied a, a lot of uh, Japanese culture. So uh, in my studies, I can definitely, I definitely saw a lot of that perception as well. in in my university track, uh, learning about that uh, particular culture too. So definitely I can see the connection there. Uh, yeah. One thing that I, that you mentioned that I wanted to uh, expand upon was uh, you had mentioned that you, you write and you paint and you played the piano how did uh having that uh exposure to the arts you mentioned your mother was also an artist uh, how do you how do you feel that your uh your exposure to those creative elements uh uh enhanced let's say your um, your view on the world of computer science yeah that's a really good question um i think having interest in the arts um like opened my mind a lot more to like how things, how knowledge can be acquired and how you can learn things. And when I went to Waterloo and, you know, took a whole bunch of like science, engineering and like math courses, I wasn't doing very well in them because I, I didn't think a certain way or, um, how do I phrase this? I guess, okay, so, I noticed um, like studying computer science in an academic setting, um, it's very, it caters very much to a certain type of thinking. People who think, people who are, who, I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> um, sorry. That's all right. Um, I wanna say that the, the biggest downfall I noticed in computer science education in university because I, I never studied it in high school or earlier is that it really caters to people who are very math oriented or very science oriented and it's really unfortunate because you know computer science is very much interdisciplinary um, especially like the applications of computer science it intersects with like the health sciences for instance it intersects with the arts when you think about like animation and music and it intersects with everything, but it's kind of it's kind of unfortunate that how it's taught or how it's marketed towards people is very like limited. Um, and bec and because of I guess my background in the arts and having been raised to appreciate the arts, 
I kind of felt very isolated in my program. Um, that was another, I guess, aspect of imposter syndrome, quote unquote. I felt like I felt like I needed to be more mathematical and scientific in my reasoning to belong in my program. And I mean, that was literally demonstrated in my grades. I struggled a lot with courses that were very logic heavy. And I did a lot better in courses that were more open-ended and um, stuff like that. And because I was kind of dissatisfied with my computer science education, because it was very like math and science-y, I took a lot of electives and courses in the humanities and social sciences. Um, I almost majored in sociology. I took a bunch of religious studies courses and I took a bunch of creative writing courses. And, you know, that was my way my outlet of, of like using my creativity somewhere that was beyond my degree. And then, you know, I would talk to my classmates about the electives I was taking and tell them how interesting it was. And they just automatically assumed that I took those courses because they were quote unquote easy courses and they would help boost my GPA. But I think that's like a huge issue in computer science education and also trying um, to attract other, trying to attract children and young people into computer science because they think it's a very mathematical field. They think it's very STEM and that's not always the case. And well, it's pretty nebulous too. I kind of laugh because I did the same thing. I took exactly those same courses. <laughs> I where I wanted to do. I ended up getting a degree in something that I ended up in a field where I can't work because I have PTSD. I ended up getting the degree in criminal justice where I can't, where I can't work in that field. And uh, so, but I have sociology psychology, creative writing, all yeah. of, you know, all those type of courses. And then I got a degree in criminal justice and realized after working in that field, PTSD was rearing its ugly head. I wanted to be a victim advocate. Can't do it because it triggers me and I just can't. So I have a degree in something that I can't even use. So I kind of relate to what you're saying, you know, and I didn't take those courses because they were easy. I took them because they spoke to me. And some people don't understand that. And I have a 4.0 GPA. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Justice. yeah. And I got into a field that <laughs> it's not worth the paper. It's work that it's written on. I mean, I can't use it. And so, you know, a year ago, I had my career all mapped out, and now I'm like, uh, what am I going to do? So I can relate to what you're saying, that some people are like, well, why'd you spend all that money on school? Yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate how, yeah. how STEM, or STEM degrees or like whatever, like STEM education is seen as more valuable as the arts and humanities. Um, I mean, there's that stereotype that, oh, if you're an English major, then you'll work at Starbucks or something like that. But um, no, I think it's not because like the field itself is inherently like easier or I don't know, more complicated. I, I just think it's like how we structure education and provide opportunities mm -hmm. for people to find jobs and work in fields that intersect with each other. And, well, I think it's particularly more of a challenge yeah. for women. Exactly, yeah. And I can imagine that it's more difficult for minority women 
Definitely. Yeah. Um, white girl, by the way, but <laughs> you know, I can, I can imagine that you had, st- you, you put that on top of it and it's got to be more of a challenge. I can imagine. Yeah. So what was, what was the, uh, the catalyst for you after becoming more open with your mental illness and your, your journey with that to launch if me? That is a very good question. Um, yeah, so I would, I guess to begin this, I would, around like my second, third year of university, that was when I was feeling more comfortable with sharing with people that I had mental illness and also just, you know, coming clean about, I guess, the lies I had created for myself. Um, I was really exhausted with people thinking everything came easy to me or, you know, people would call me a genius and like say, oh my God, you're just so good at everything. And I mean, I knew that wasn't the case and not because of imposter syndrome, just because, you know, I was flat out failing and, you know, I was struggling with school like anyone else was. So Mm -hmm. I started writing blogs about it on my website and then sharing it with my classmates. And then, you know, that really resonated with people because for a long time I felt like, oh, you know, I'm the only one who's struggling everyone else is just like, they just don't understand like how hard it is. And, you know, everything is so rough for me because of, you know, my past and my background and all of that stuff. But then you realize like once you open up and you create an environment that is a safe space for other people in doing that, you realize that other people struggle too in different ways. Um, Not to say that your problems don't mean anything. It's more like, because we all face issues, we should be really using that opportunity to, be kind to each other and help each other out. So in writing candidly about my mental illness and, you know, failing in school and feeling the need to not tell anyone about it and hide it and pretend I was always doing well, you know, I discovered a lot of people in my exact situation, people who had done similar things, people who were about to drop out of school because they were so terrified about life and everything that was going on around them. And um, it was in a way really comforting to know that there were other people that could empathize with me. And then I'd have lots of people reach out to me. I'd have people send me like private messages and emails and just telling me their stories. And it was just really nice and really empowering. And I guess through that process, you know, I felt, I felt more comfortable with sharing more because I knew that it would resonate with somebody, even though they couldn't share it themselves. But then, you know, also in the process, you know, I lost some friends because you know, mental health is something that is not accepted everywhere. And it's something that's kind of terrifying to people. So I lost some friends in the process of coming clean about my own struggles. I can relate to that one too. Yeah, it it sucks. I (laughs) I think when you come to that, I think when you go through that process of hey, this is where, this is what's happening to me. This is, this is um, what's going on. I think that you find out who your real friends are. You do, yeah. And it's, it's a very scary process because as much as it's good for you to be honest and authentic, you know. It is. Never, yeah. I know that when I came, Ryan and I just started dating when I got my diagnosis. And I was like, okay, this is it. You either, there's the door, 
or you know, you're either in this or you're not, and I'm giving you your out. And he just looked at me and he says, okay. We deal with a lot of the same issues, you know. <laughs> it's like, he says, let's put it this way, because I was really afraid. And he says, let's put it this way. If, let's say you have a, you have a car and there's a glove compartment. And you didn't know what that glove compartment was called, but you knew it was a, you knew it existed. And someone one day said, hey, look at the glove compartment. Now, does that change what that glove compartment does and what it is? No. Right, yeah. Compartment. Well, guess what? You now know what your glove compartment is called. Does it change who you are? No, but now you know what your glove compartment is called. It's called bipolar. <laughs> right, and I think there's something really powerful in having a word to define what you're going through and then also sharing that with somebody like I think right then I knew I knew it, that Ryan was the most amazing person in my life at that moment oh uh, that's amazing I just, knew, I just knew that it was it was gonna be okay it was gonna be okay but I also know never go off my medication I mean that's okay <laughs> yeah. but I'm just saying that you know that, that there's just sometimes that you know just knowing that there's a name to it you know, it's so, it's so important and yeah. being able to like verbalize it and write it down and communicate it is a huge thing. And I think to deal with mental health issues, like I think communication is probably the biggest part of treatment, being able to talk about it and be honest and through communication, like communicate the type of support that you want. And you brought up the topic of like, you know, you were really lucky that you had a partner who was able to support you and yeah, it's, I guess this kind of made me think of another topic in my head, but like having mental illness and being in like romantic relationships with people, it's a nightmare. <laughs> and um, I subjected myself to a lot of that when I was in university and it was really difficult, you know, even though like it's really hard to be intimate with somebody and open up to them that you have mental illness. And then I guess the hardest part there is just like, taking care of yourself and not relying on that person too much emotionally. Right. And then on top of that, like, what if you do end up with a partner who just doesn't understand like mental health and like how things work? Um, I was in a lot of situations where I was gaslighted by my partners or, you know, my mental illness was an excuse for whatever problem was happening. And it, it's hard. <laughs> mm. I think in general, finding people who understand that mental health is normal and also understand, like, not to use it against you. Right. Really yeah, that's, that's just wrong. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I'm crazy, but I'm not wrong. Right, right, yeah. And Just because guess, I'm like, crazy doesn't mean I'm wrong, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard to relate to other people. And then, like, for me personally, like, the word crazy has sort of become a trigger word for me because it was used in a way to like stigmatize me. Yeah. To stigmatize me for having mental illness and being like, no, you know, you're crazy. You cause all these problems. This is inherently your fault. And like, obviously that's not how you should have a conversation with somebody. Right. right. Me. I see. I look at it differently. I embrace it because it doesn't define me. And if I don't let it define me, it can't hurt me. Yeah. That's, it. that's so powerful. Very, but I also have to be careful that I don't use it glibly and throw it out there just 
because other people respond differently and I might trigger someone else. And so, and I have a very twisted sense of humor, very dark sense of humor. <laughs> so I am careful about that, but I do. I know I use it glibly. I know that I do that and I know that other people may not see it the way that I do. So I, if I offend you, it, I apologize in advance because I don't mean it that way at all. Oh, no, I'm not offended at all. I just, I guess I wanted to point out that we do. Our society does. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like society. your relationships with people really impact the way you, you see certain words or you, you even see your own mental illness. Like, mm-hmm. right. Like for you, um, you've embraced, you embrace the word crazy. You don't let it define you. And then for others where crazy has been frequently used as something to like hurt them with, it's like weaponized. Right, right, yeah. Right. Weapon- yeah. Exactly. I have a friend who's struggling with um, schizophrenia and she leans heavily on me for emotional support and, you know, cause she understands that we could, we struggle with some of the same things and, and I'm very careful not to throw that at her. She says, do you think I'm crazy? And I said, it doesn't matter what I think. If you think that you're having an episode, then you're having an episode. But I very, but I don't, I don't throw that at her. I never insult her with that. I never, I'm very careful about my words with her because I'm not trying to hurt her. I'm trying to help her. So exactly. Yeah. I think that skill is really important. Um, If, especially when you're dealing with someone in your life who has mental illness, to be really careful with the words you use and also to like understand what their triggers are and be able to support them when they need it. And it's hard. It's a process. And in order for that to happen, the person, you know, with mental illness has to be comfortable to like open up and like say those things. She confides in me and it's just like, well, and I may make a joke, but she also knows I'm joking and I know where the line is and I never, yeah. I never go near that line because I don't want to trigger her. I don't want to hurt her. So yeah, I think that you have to have a skill and she knows I'm twisted and she knows when I'm, <laughs> you know, so yeah. 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 So now there there is kind of one one thing I do want to bring up, but um there's a uh uh, uh Ted's talk uh you know that we actually talked about very, very early on in our run, um called that it, it's just so precious to me. Uh, it's called uh, the power of vulnerability. Now, uh, yes, it's a tough it, it's it's a tough transition, but like this beautiful world and op- opens up opens up to you at the at the other side. Yeah, you you yeah the bad bad stuff. You you feel the you know the the downtime downtimes more because you're being you know I'm the kind of person that definitely wears his heart on his sleeve. <laughs> so, um, but but yeah, you don't you you yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that up. And I, it's, it's very difficult for me to even, emo- uh, for a long time, I hid my emotions. I don't even have emotions. I don't, emotions don't exist and it can't hurt me. Yeah. I and mean. gotten where I can go, okay, yes, these emotions exist. I can allow them to feel, I can feel whatever I'm feeling and move on. Well, that, well, that's part, prob- partly because at the start of our relationship, I'm like, okay, this is stuff that I'm, t- that I'm dealing with in my own head. We're going to have this spork in the eye conversation. <laughs> we have a lot of those. 
but there's a, there's also <laughs> things in our history that just you know other things that we won't get into but just uh it just um it's taking me a long time just to admit it's okay to feel the feel the ugly emotions feel the negative emotions and be okay with it yeah and i guess something else i want to add is that um at least i've noticed in my own like treatment with mental health is that with mental health and mental illness we often focus on the negative emotions we're like oh well you know what does it mean when like you know i'm feeling depressed or i'm feeling anxious or triggered etc and then something like i've recently like learned to appreciate is like the good emotions like i never I never stop to think about like the times I feel happy or I feel relieved or I feel proud of myself and celebrate that. Um, often with a lot of mental health treatment, you you're focused on analyzing what the negative stuff means and like how that plays in your, your life story and how you behave with other people. But I think it's also really important to focus on the good things and be like, Hey, I had a really good day today. And that's awesome. <laughs> but Going back to, you brought up this video called The Power of Vulnerability. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but I should see it. Um, I think vulnerability is really important. And it's very clear that we live in a society where, you know, being vulnerable does not equal success. You, in order to, like, move up in the world, move up in your job or wherever, you kind of have to sacrifice those things so you can focus on being productive. And right now, um, I work in the tech industry. Um, I work as a software engineer full time and like this last year I've been navigating like how should, how can I be vulnerable at work while also not, you know, risking my own career. Right. And it's really hard. <laughs> it is a fine line. Yeah. So that's um, coming, going from the uh, beginnings of, you know, at the point where you decide, yes, I'm going to make this thing called, called if me, uh, what, what are some, some of the, like, as like the little surprises that have come along as far as how, how it's like evolved? Yeah. Uh, so before I answer that, I guess I should tell people what if me is. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I realized I didn't talk about it, but. So IFME is a mental health communication app that I started three years ago. It started off as just like a random side project I did because I wanted to sort of build up my resume, but also deal with my own mental health issues. And it ended up becoming an open source project once I realized that other people were really interested in it and wanted to contribute. And also I didn't want to make it a startup, so I made it an open source project. But kind of what we were talking about earlier, how you know, it's so important to have maintain communication with your loved ones when it comes to mental health and understand what their triggers are or, you know, what words to use with them or not what, what words to use with them. Um, yeah, so, like, with that in mind, you know, if me is a tool for that. It's a tool to communicate your feelings, to document them, and also share them with your loved ones because, you know, we live in a society, I guess, with technology and computers and everything else in between where, it's really hard and really rare to have face-to-face -face conversations with people now, especially about the sensitive stuff like mental health. And if you think about your daily interactions with people, it's probably via text. You're probably typing something down, sending a bunch of emojis. Right. So, so that tool makes use of that, um, being able to write down and log what you're going through. And through that, you know, get the support that you need and that you deserve. 
But leading the project has been really eye-opening. Um, so prior to leading IFME, I had never led an open source project before. And there isn't like a how-to lead an open source manual <laughs> out there. It's not really a thing. It's kind of something that you figure out on your own. Right. And also, you notice patterns in like really good open source projects that are out there versus really bad, unsupportive projects that are out there. But that's been my biggest learning experience with IFME. Um, I started off as the primary developer, writing most of the code, even designing stuff. And it's gone to a point where like there, there have been so many contributors who have come and gone and who have made like huge impacts on the project. And that's really awesome. And I think like the biggest thing I learned with leading an open source project is how to make it inclusive and how to make it engaging to as many people as possible. You know, similar to, you know, being in tech and the issues of finding software engineering positions, there aren't a lot of minorities in open source. Um, it's an area that's very intimidating. Like, I remember growing up and thinking of open source as the Linux project. Mm -hmm. And I kind of saw open source as, oh, you know, it's something that's really low level and something that's really intense. And it's something that only a certain demographic of people can do like, you know, white dudes with computer science degrees, like tech very technical, <laughs> yeah, tech nerds or whatever. And then, but then you realize that like, that's totally wrong because open source has the word open and it's kind of messed up that a lot of these open source communities are very closed off and don't, are not very good at engaging like different types of people. So I think that's the biggest like challenge for me and biggest thing I'm learning is how to make open source open for people. And I feel like I've done a lot of that through IFME. Um, the majority of our contributors have never coded before or have very little experience. They're like junior or like entry level developers. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, um, another like huge misconception about open source software is that the only way you can contribute is if you write code. Right. And there are so many things you can do. You can not only file bugs and issues, you can write documentation. Um, for our project, we have this really awesome social media manager named B, and she curates all of these articles and themes every month, and she gets people to write about their mental health experiences. And like that's open source, you know, like having a publication out there where people can contribute to. So. Yeah, like the biggest lessons I've learned is that like, you know, in order for open source to be open, you have to make an effort for it to be open. You have to reach out to people who aren't just developers, but other people who can contribute. And I think with like, if me being inherently a mental health project, um, I think that's a lot easier to do than say a project that's, you know, for like, than say a project that's an open source project for like a programming language. Right. But with mental health, like everybody can relate. So because of that, like, you know, I've been tasked with the, with the job of like trying to find ways as many people as possible can contribute. And recently we were working on um, internationalizing our app because something that like I didn't realize for a while, well, something that I didn't realize immediately was that, you know, mental health, typically is basically accessible only to English speaking people in North America or people who have mental health education. And, you know, I was, I was fortunate, like growing up having my mom, like make all this effort to take me to therapy, make sure I took my medication, but a lot of communities, a lot of immigrant communities, for instance, and a lot of communities that don't speak English know nothing about this. 
so internationalizing the app would make this app accessible to those communities. So we had a bunch of open source contributors um, last year work on translating the app from English to Spanish. And we're hoping to do that with other languages because, you know, in order for open source to be open, in order for mm -hmm. mental health to be open, which is kind of the mission of our project, um, you know, it, it has to be in different languages. And to tie it back into your artistic background, it's like pl uh, playing a piano piece or oil painting or writing a story. Everything has, its own, has a language, but it can be universal if it's, if it's an open source effort. Exactly. Yeah. And from what I've been able to, uh, to deduce is given the advocacy that you've had in your life, from what, again, from what I can tell is that that has played a really big role in your approach to if me, that you're taking open source and you want to put it at the same equivalent standing as the term advocate, that you want to make open source a true advocacy platform. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, you know, I firmly believe that mental health should be open and even arguably free. <laughs> I really think it should be. Yeah. And like, that means different things. I mean, in terms of services, I think it should be accessible to everyone. But in order for mental health to be something that everyone thinks about, we have to be open about it in all different types of ways. And, you know, open source is one way to do that through software. And it's really empowering and really awesome. Now, when you say free, do you, do you uh, are you talking free as in beer or free or free as in freedom? I mean, free as in like money. Like <laughs> mental health, like mental health care is expensive. Like you know how much it costs to go to a therapist each week or go to a counselor. Yeah, um, yeah, we're well aware. <laughs> yeah, we are yeah, well aware. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I live in the U.S. right now, and it's like obviously in a worse state than the Canadian healthcare system is, and it's really unfortunate because everyone like goes through mental health and a lot of people go through really dark times where they need these services. And it's really sad that it's more expensive than doing harmful things to yourself. And that's messed up. <laughs> right. And I'd like to ask, actually ask you about that with your experiences here with the U S model of healthcare versus that of the Canadian one. What are the differences that you've seen in terms of mental health treatment? Well, so Canada has universal health care, and that doesn't mean that, like, everything is free. I think that's sort of a misconception. But, like, mental health care, for instance, um, isn't completely free in Canada. So you do have to pay out of pocket for things. And I didn't grow up having insurance because my mom didn't work. So I basically relied on being young. That is to say, like, I think up until you're 18, you get, like, you get free dental, you get free mental health care. But then like once you get older, you have to pay for it. So I guess that's the limit with Canadian healthcare and mental health. But I would say it's a lot better than the US from what I've seen. Like when I started working here full time and started interacting with insurance companies and the process of choosing an insurer, it felt really weird. It felt like it didn't feel like healthcare. It felt like buying a house or something. It felt yeah very impersonal and then I guess I don't know if I can speak to it but um like for instance I'm I've been with Kaiser and like I've gone to their clinics and used their services and they've been decent and stuff but like 
just the feeling of entering the, the clinics, it doesn't feel like entering a hospital or a doctor's office. It kind of feels like entering a mall or something. It's very like... Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's, I mean, we have Kaiser over here as well. And I, I def, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that assertion. <laughs> See, I'm, in a, I'm in, a, in a healthcare center or a healthcare program, I guess you could call it, or where it's geared for low income and it's like the health, what do you want to call it? A health like supplemental type supplemental, thing. Supplemental, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where it's very much clinic, <laughs> very much you know you're in a clinic, you know you're in a healthcare facility, you know that you're in a hospital, you know that you're in a healthcare center. Where right. You know, uh, because it's it's also geared for Medicare pa or Medicaid patients, Medicare, you know, low income, you know, totally different environment, totally yeah. different system. But I also get all the care I need when I need it. I but I'm also paying <laughs> out paying of pocket. Out nose, yeah. I'm also paying $125 for the medication that i need one medication one medication out of four that i need so oh it's crazy crazy out of pocket yeah um, honestly so, i still yeah. don't really understand the u.s healthcare system like i had I, i've lived here my whole life i don't explain it to me and i still don't understand what like co-pays are it's, it's very confusing yeah. but um i think like the healthcare system being the way it is plus like the need for better mental health just makes things even worse because you know, mental health care is something that people don't intuitively know how to acquire. <laughs> um, like, for instance, if you have a cold, you know, to go to a doctor and set up an appointment and then, you know, get whatever medication you get to deal with the cold. But then with healthcare, with mental health care, like, no one really knows. Yeah. Like, you don't know how to, like, go about to get mental health care until you've actually done it yourself or had someone do it for you. And like the process I know for like, you know, finding a therapist, finding a psychiatrist and all of that stuff, like the difference between a therapist and psychiatrist, like that's, right. something that's not taught to you as a kid. It's really scary and very daunting. And, you know, especially if you are going through a mental health crisis and you're going through issues, yeah. it's a lot of work to like find energy mm -hmm. in that time to like go out and find proper mental health care. If you're already having a crisis, exactly, you yeah. To have a, you're liable not to do it. Yeah, and until I've, you have a situation, exactly, yeah, involuntary right. <laughs> breakdown, and you have no choice. <laughs> exactly, basically, like that's how I ended up in the system. But <laughs> I have a friend who's a nurse, and that's how he ended up in the system. Same thing. I mean, he waited until he had no choice in the matter. Right. Yeah, and I think it's really unfortunate that like most people have to get to that point in order to see their first therapist or to be diagnosed. It's, it's not something that you constantly think about like ongoing kind of like, you know, how people work out all the time and exercise and they do that with the intention of being healthy and preventing something. Like we don't really have that same mentality when it comes to mental health care. I think, I think in this country, we still have a stigma. It's still oh, yeah. stigmatized. Oh, yeah. And yet, Definitely. Yeah. All of us. I think, I think, I think most of us deal with some sort of yeah. need. Definitely. Like we literally all have brains. Therefore we have mental health. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
And something like I kind of want to bring up is that for a lot of, because of like, we don't have enough mental health education, a lot of these things get acknowledged once horrible things happen. Like for instance, at my university recently, there were a handful of suicides that happened within months of each other. And because of, because that happened, people started talking about mental health more. People started petitioning with my university to have better mental health services. And it's really unfortunate because like in the past, like I've tried to do that as well. And I had a lot of friends who would try to argue with my school and demand for better services. But it really sucks that like the stuff gets acknowledged once people kill themselves and yeah, it, it's Some it's sad really to like, get that it has to get to that point. Some tragedy, yeah. I was very lucky when I had to seek out mental health for the first time, and that this is a very recent development in my life. And I was very fortunate that my sister works in this field, and she's uh, she was the one that was very uh, very instrumental as a, a doctor of psychology to know what to look for, to know uh, and identify individuals who specialize in certain treatment methods like cognitive or, or anything else, uh, therapeutic uh, uh, treatment. And I wouldn't have known if I did not have that resource where I would have even started when I needed to do that uh, research to find the help that I needed. And again, very fortunate that I had that resource. And it was hard even then for, for me to say to her, please help me. And not everybody has that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the questions that to, uh, to lighten the mood a little bit after, after telling that story. Uh, uh, how did you come up with the name If Me? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I got this question a lot and I started off writing a blog. It was like an anonymous Tumblr blog and it had the words If Me in it. Um, I kind of got the name from, I guess, you know, being a coder and being a programmer, like there's Boolean logic, like conditional. Oh, yeah, logic. yeah. If me, then that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I don't know. Um, it's, it's kind of one of those names that I like, came up with randomly and then over time associated more meaning with it. And yeah, I guess if me, um, I guess what I associate with now is more like, you know, like, if this, then that, um, there's different ways to tell your story. There's different ways to share who you are with people. And yeah. And it's really interesting, like, talking to people who contribute and like, they share what the name means to them. And it's, it's really interesting to see what people come up with. And yeah. What are, what are some, what are, what are some that, that really stick out to you? Or that, that you feel comfortable sharing. Let me. <laughs> or if there's something that you feel that you can share, we, do, we certainly don't want to violate any confidentiality. Right, right. Yeah, good point. Um, let me think about it. Uh, just, just, a, just really quick, uh, I wanted to ask you this because, uh, again, doing a, doing a bit of a research into your. Uh, into some uh, prior interviews you've given, uh, there was uh, there was a piece that you had. Uh, 
that you had uh, on uh, an ugly side to women in tech organizations. And there was a, a quote that you uh, had referenced. And I apologize if I'm speaking out of turn on this, but this was something that really intrigued me. And I was wondering if you could speak to this where uh, someone had made a, a, a comment uh, uh, not face to face to you about there's Julia the person and Julia the case. And you mentioned that uh, you refer to that uh, particular comment when you feel insecure about your mental health work. And I was very curious as to why you, why you go back to that comment. What is it about those words that strike a chord in you? Yeah. I've never had anyone bring up that article with me before. Um, yeah. There's a lot to unpack in that article, but um, I do want to say that like, I mean, the issues that I raised in that article, like, you know, happen a lot with different volunteer organizations, even ones that have really good intentions and, you know, fight for social justice or want to make the world better for women in computer science, for instance. And yeah, it's, it's hard when you have lots of really passionate people working together for the same goal. You, you have a lot of different personality caches and stuff like that. But yeah, that, that quote like really stood out to me because it was something that someone had said behind my back and I found out through somebody else that they had said it. So that, you know, that was pretty hurtful. Um, but I think about that quote a lot because um, I guess in the mental health work I've done, you know, I've been very open about my experiences. Um, people know that I'm a mental health advocate and it's, and it's something I, even though it's very empowering to be honest about this and talk about this and have this relate to a lot of the work I do, sometimes I feel a little insecure and I wonder, hey, you know, do people just know me as like the mental health person? Am I like the token Asian woman that talks about mental health? You know, stuff like that. And I think, I think that happens a lot when you're like an advocate or an activist and you're advocating for a very specific thing. You, um, it's, it's a lot of emotional labor and sometimes you don't get the appreciation you want or the attribution that you feel like you need. And yeah, I mean that quote, it really stuck with me because it sticks with a lot of insecurities I have about doing a lot of volunteer and a lot of social justice oriented work. It's, it's very exhausting. <laughs> and as the word like volunteer states, like you don't get paid for it. Um, the only thing you pay for it is, you know, your own time and, yeah. That's a lot though. Sometimes that's everything. Your time is valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I guess with that being said, um, something I really learned was that, you know, self-care is really important and you're not obligated to be an activist all the time and, you know, fight the cause and do all those wonderful things. It's okay to like, step back and say no to things and that was really hard for me to do because you know people always come up with me come to me with like different volunteer opportunities or different ways I could get my project out and stuff like that and I, I felt the need to say yes all the time because you know you you want to succeed you want to do well and also it becomes really part of your identity you kind of see it as oh if I'm not doing this and like what do people know me for like I'm not successful but something I really learned that like you know you come first and um, specifically speaking to people who are in tech, like tech can feel like it consumes your life all the time. It feels like you constantly have to care about your work all the time, 
or you constantly have to project that you're interested in the latest technologies or programming languages or whatever. And then, you know, a lot of people who are in tech are on Twitter and, you know, they're posting their expertise on things, their opinions on stuff. And it just becomes really overwhelming. And something that I've really learned in the past year is that, you know, there's more to life than the work you do. There's, there's the stuff that you enjoy. There's your friends, there's your family. Um, there's random hobbies. So mm -hmm. yeah, I guess my ultimate message here is that like, it's okay to say no to stuff and you're still an awesome person. <laughs> and that's a good valuable uh, thing to carry with you every day. That's absolutely for sure. And, and also you matter. Unless you multiply yourself by the speed of light, then you energy. <laughs> You're such I, a goof. I know. <laughs> it's so true though. It, um, is. I mean, it is true. Like we live in a society where we're measured by like, you know, where we work, how much money we make, what our title is, how many followers we have on whatever social media. And it, it's overwhelming and it sucks. And you know, there's more to life than that. <laughs> we talked a few episodes back about spoon theory and how, I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, that sounds really cool. I like spoons. <laughs> I'll give you, I'll just give you a synopsis of yeah. it because I don't want to take a whole lot of time, but spoon theory is, is uh, something in, um, that I, it, the IFK for, but what it was is there's a, there's a, it, it's, if you go on a website, it's called butyoudontlooksick.com. And it talks about people who have illnesses where you don't see. They're not visible. They're not visible. I have, for instance, I have fibromyalgia. And it was talking about, it was written by a woman who had lupus. And she was always making lunch dates with her best friend, but having to cancel because she just didn't have energy. And she finally made the time to go have lunch with her friend. And her friend was complaining you know, why do you always bail on me? And she says, best way I can describe it is like this. So she, they were in a diner. So she grabbed 12 spoons off the tables around her. She said, okay, hold these spoons. And she said, okay, this is how I'm going to describe my day to you. Those spoons represent energy. And I'm going to describe to you activities in my day. And as I describe them to you, you're going to hand me a spoon. So I got up this morning. I woke up this morning. Give me a spoon. I got out of bed. Give me another spoon. Went to the bathroom and took a shower. Give me a spoon. And you better give me another spoon because I had to wash my hair. I got out of the shower and I got dressed. Give me a spoon. I, you know, she described her day and she got down to you better keep a reserve spoon in your back pocket because you're going to need that spoon by the end of the day. Now, so she went through her whole day and she says, do you understand what it's like for my day? So get coming here, give me a spoon. Having this conversation with you costs me a spoon. <laughs> I, you know, do you understand, do, do you understand how my day goes? And you only have 12 spoons. You got a reserve spoon in the back of your, that, that's your reserve spoon. You got to have it because you can't, you can't replenish your spoons. And she described this story in any way. It's, it's, there's a whole subset of people called the spoonies. 
<laughs> full steps of people. And anyway, so whenever I'm feeling low on energy, I say I only have half a spoon today or whatever that I'm feeling really low on energy. So I get it. Sometimes when you feel like that you just don't have that energy, you just don't have the spoons. <laughs> so that's what that reminds me of. Anyway, you should read that whole story. It's, it's very poignant. Yeah, that sounds like a really great way to communicate to people that, you know, energy is limited and it's okay not to have spoons. Yeah, and, oh, and when, thank I, you. When, I, when I tell people, read that story, read, go on that website and read it, and then you'll understand why I'm rescheduling my lunch with you or <laughs> doing an activity with you. And my friends have learned, okay, we're tentatively, tentatively <laughs> right. scheduling this. And nine times out of ten, it, you know, they understand. My friends have, have learned, okay, we don't, we don't schedule anything permanently with you. And, and most of the time, it all works out. And um, my friends have just learned. And, and they're, they're very supportive with me because I may be having a mental health day. I may be having a high pain day or whatever's going on. But, yeah, the spoon theory, it's, it's a great – it's a whole another subset of – so it's a whole nother box of spoons. Yes. <laughs> people who support one another in open source, they do very similar things. It's a whole subset of people that support one another. I think it's a great, they, they call themselves the spoonies though. It's hilarious. But um, anyway, it's called, but don't, but you don't look sick.com. Wow. It's a great, it's a great site. Speaking of you don't look sick. I've heard, I've heard that comment so many times <laughs> throughout my life. Like when I open up to someone about having mental illness, they're like, oh my God, but you look so normal. And it's just, I hate that word. Uh, I know. Like, what does normal mean? Uh, normal people scare me. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> normal people don't exist in my eyes. Everyone has their own thing. Yeah. No, it just, yeah. What is normal? It's, exactly. Yeah. We all have a level of ex ex Quirkiness. Quirkiness <laughs> yes. is a good word. I can't say the other word I'm thinking of. Quirkiness would be a good word. Just yeah. Have our own, we have our own stuff. Whether you're honest about it or not. And I just choose to, you know what? It's coming out. Yeah. I'm not going to hide it. You know, I can, I can be professional. I can keep a certain level of this is what I, I do PR work now. I took, I just now took a PR job. What was I thinking? But no, I mean, where I have to sit, there's a certain thing I have to project, but I'm not going to hide my personality because that's just not, it's not hideable. Yeah. <laughs> this is who I am. It's just going to be, you know, but you know, I also know when to be professional. I can be professional, but this is still my personality. This is what you get, you know? But yeah. So anyway, I'll shut up now. <laughs> so, yeah, we've gotten actually pretty, pretty long here. So I, um, uh, so Julia, where can, uh, where can people learn more about if me and, uh, about your, uh, your journey? Um, yeah. So we have a website, if dash me.org. Um, you can learn about the project there. There's also links to our, medium publication our github and everything else in between and i guess in terms of like learning about me um i post a lot on twitter though i'm trying to post less um my twitter handle is at 
Fleur Child. And then my website is just uh, julianwin.org or also julia.tech. They, they're like aliases of each other. But yeah, and feel free to reach out to me if like if anyone who's listening who wants to share their story or yeah. And I definitely want to thank you for take, taking time, time out, of your, out yes. of your busy schedule to talk with us. And for everyone out there listening, converse, it's, it's wonderful conversations like this that can happen when, when, you dis, when you decide to turn off that little imposter vo- voice in your head and ask anyway. Julia, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we would definitely love to have you back again in the future. You've Absolutely. Been yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you for everyone here opening up and sharing a lot about yourselves. It's, it was, it's really nice to like learn more. Yeah. And I think we can all uh, agree that in the, in the time that we've spent with each other, that we, we can be at least in some form or fashion adv- advocates for each other. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. And I think the most important thing is just like be an advocate for yourself and like stand up for like the healthcare you deserve and stand up for like the happiness you deserve. Agreed. Couldn't said, couldn't have said it better. So yeah, there you go. Um, lot, there's, uh, I, I know there's a lot to unpack in that, in that one. So, uh, what, what do you guys, what, what are your initial reactions? Uh, I thought it was fantastic. I thought uh, Julia was uh, an absolute joy to uh, to speak to, to listen to her story and her background from uh, when she was uh, growing up and her struggles with uh, mental health and using art in terms of being able to step forward into her career field of software engineering and develop this If Me project. I think it's... I, I think this really could, uh, it has a lot of promise and yeah. for, for all we know, there could be, uh, people out there who have a story to share, but may not know where to begin. Right. And having that, uh, how do I want to put this? The ability to be in an environment, even if it's through app-based technology, to share your story and find allies who, although they may not be wearing the same type of shoe you're wearing, mm-hmm. are walking the same journey you're wearing. And there's a lot of, there can be a lot of reassurance. There can be a lot of Compassion. There could be a lot of strength. Solidarity. Yeah. Solidarity. Exactly. And this is something that no one that we know of until we had this conversation. Right. Had the foresight to do. And we could throw out a whole bunch of different descriptions and platitudes of courage, bravery, strength. Mm -hmm. But it takes someone who's been through those struggles, who's been through those days and nights of, of despair to say that, to take that, to take up that, that call, that calling and, 
invest in it. And one thing that uh, kind of struck out, struck you know, struck me was that this really is a labor of love for her. Oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I really. I'm really curious to see where this will lead. And even if it's helping a very small, intimate community, that's better than having no community right. to go to. I don't think it could have been said better. Yeah. I really don't. Um, yeah. I, I just don't think anything can be added to it other than, you know, I would like to have her back on and talk to her a little more. Um, I know it was a really long episode, yeah. but um, I'd like to ha- have her back on, definitely. Yeah, there's there's just, there's there, there's a whole lot of, I mean, just, at, as, as I mean, I noticed that as we went along, it kind of, it kind of started out trying to wanting, you know, it was like, oh yeah, we're going to do an inter- interview, blah, blah, blah. and then we just, all three of us just ended up, Connect or all four of us. Sorry, <sighs> time maths are hard. Well, it's not time. Okay, all right. Anyway, maths are hard and it's late. <laughs> so I mean, but we we like all four of us just ended up connect connecting and r- really relating to each other. Which that that was a really nice, pleasant surprise. That uh, at least from me, we all got something out of this conversation, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it was something that had value, and that's a that's a word that I've really started identifying with over the last few months of my you know my life. That to find value in something, and uh, I won't speak for for either of you of what you determined to be valuable in that conversation, but I think it, it's uh, patently obvious that I valued the approach and perspective as an artist. And someone who had a different perspective other than just uh, a linear mm-hmm. approach. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is absolutely key to anything. We can approach things from cause and effect, if, then, or what have you. Uh, but there really was just a whole uh untold and we really just scratched the surface in oh this, i know in this conversation yeah that uh we that julia really is a very just a very uh rare she's very a very rare soul very rare personality and having her here on the on our uh, our podcast I mean, it really is this, I believe, is a defining episode, a defining conversation. I I would agree with that, absolutely. What we are doing here and the hallmark of being what we are of honest, open, and vulnerable. And we all shared something. Uh, I certainly did not expect to share what I did in some respects, (laughs) but... Knowing that you are able to pull back the veil of what it means to go through your struggles, that's the atmosphere that she's fostering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And in a certain way, that's also kind of the atmosphere this podcast is attempting to do. So we, I think it's, I think it's uh, fair to say that we are very like-minded yeah. in being able to see that 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 definitely that definitely came came out as the as it went on for sure i mean if i mean if we were close i mean if if, if we were any clo- closer to ge- geographically i told i totally would you know want to hang, hang out with her and yeah i i to- i totally re- resonate with her on a, on a number of the things which i actually met actually mentioned when it's what she said them <laughs> right and and that's i think kind of uh what we want to do is have uh have it have this have this place be where we can do exactly that share those share those things that uh not everybody gets to see mm-hmm. this definitely this this episode is definitely going to have a different feel a different flavor Abs- yeah from absolutely. everything that we do compared to uh the you know our our usual temp our usual tenor our usual tone mm-hmm. but you know what uh that's 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 part of that's part of the journey we have part of the life that we lead and part of who we are that's right so that uh closes this uh particular uh chap- chapter in our journey so i do thank you for listening and again, I am eternally grateful for uh, Ju- Julia uh, in, uh, sharing her t- time with us and sharing their stories. So if you liked or didn't, for some reason, um, what, what you heard, uh, please post a comment or get in touch, touch with us using the channels available on our contact page at hovpodcast.net. And please subscribe to us using either iTunes, Google Play, or TuneIn.